I hope you got the note this week that we are stepping away from the John study. Maybe you are here last week and heard that. If you're new to New Hope, uh, we've been working through a study of the book of John in the New Testament, and we're about 20 weeks into it, but I didn't want to continue with that right now because so many new individuals coming and and checking out New Hope here in the month of September that um, wanted to give them a chance to ease in, and so we're taking on a a six-week study called I Won't Back Down, but we will get back to the, the book of John and be able to uh, finish that out. If you have one of the bulletins this morning, when you uh, came in, maybe you were handed one of those or you picked one up, you'll notice that the, uh, the piece of paper inside there doesn't have notes on it this week. That's because it's going to be your task this morning to write down your own notes, okay? So it's a blank sheet, and we're going to start out this way this morning. I'm going to ask you a question. If you don't mind grabbing one of those New Hope pens there in front of you, and uh, you can write down the answer to this question. It's very personal for you, not necessarily for the person next to you unless you want them to see it, or maybe you're just going to capture it in your mind. Here's the question. If you could identify one area in your own personal life that you would like to have a major victory over in the next, let's say, nine months, what would that one area be? you got that in your mind, go ahead and write that down. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's academics if you're a student. Maybe it's relational. I wonder if it's occupational. Maybe it's related to your job. What's that one major area that you'd like to face and say, I'm going to have victory over this? One thing is very certain because of the culture that you live in, because of the world that we inhabit, every one of us faces major battles of some type. What it's going to be in the next week or the next month or the next nine months, I don't know. But you can be certain. You might even be in the midst of it right now. You will face some form of a major obstacle might come in the form of a health report. might be your next bank statement. I don't know what that specific item is. We can see individuals throughout Scripture whom we would consider to be heroes of the faith, major characters. Daniel, David, Gideon, Esther. What sets them apart? There's a reason why I want to study their lives over the next six weeks. You see, they're not just morally relevant. They're not just culturally relevant. They're spiritually victorious individuals. They were distinctive in their time and yet relevant to the society that they lived in. See, I meet many individuals, obviously pastoring a church, um, you're going to meet lots of people. And in, in my previous ministries where I was at, in a parachurch organization, met lots, thousands of people because I was on the radio all the time, always doing appearances, met many people who were in one of two camps. Either they were completely culturally relevant or they were completely spiritually distinctive. But rarely do I meet individuals who are both. New Hope is fortunate to have a lot of individuals like that. And here's the difference. You can be spiritually distinctive, completely set apart, but have no impact whatsoever on culture. Or you can be completely culturally relevant, and no one would know that you're a believer and a follower of Christ because you're not spiritually distinctive. What we're looking at with these individuals are people who are capable of merging the two together. They were spiritually distinctive yet they were culturally relevant. That's what we're going to explore because it takes a specific key element that you have to ingrain into your life to be able to accomplish that status. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn to the Old Testament story in 1 Samuel 17 of David and Goliath. That's what we're going to examine this morning. Regardless of what you think you know about this story, it'd be wonderful if you could just take your knowledge of that setting and put it on the shelf. You may have examined this story a week ago 
or you may have not looked at it for 10 years. Perhaps you've never heard this story. But I'm going to ask you to take it and just set it on the shelf, what you think you know, and allow God's Spirit to speak to you this morning in a fresh, new way. See what God has to say to you. Now, here's the background for it. Jonathan is the son of King Saul. Jonathan is irritated that his dad will not go out with the war with the armies of Israel and fight against the Philistines. So he decides to pick a fight. And without telling anyone, he heads off into Philistine territory and he engages in a skirmish. But what he actually ends up doing is stirring the hornet's nest and he ticks off the Philistines. The Philistines are a mighty army. You're going to learn about them in just a minute. Let's start off with 1 Samuel chapter 17. You'll see verse 1 up on the screen. If you're new to New Hope, you'll be able to follow along that way or by grabbing one of the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Old Testament, very familiar story. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Sukkah and Azekah in Ephesdamin. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. Now, we see right away in that text that they're gathered at Selica, meaning they're in Judah, they're in Israel. The Philistines have advanced their military army front all the way into the promised land. They've left Philistine territory, and they've advanced on the nation of Israel, and they're in their property line. And we find that they're in the midst of this area that is called the Valley of Elah. I'll explain that in a minute. I want you to see a couple maps on the screen, help you to get this in your mind. The first map is going to show you the ancient world. Now, the ancient world is made up primarily comprised of Rome and Greece and Egypt, and where we see Israel is sitting off to the east of the Mediterranean Sea. The people that we're reading about this morning, the Philistines, were actually of Aegean descent. They're from the area of what we know of as Greece. But they weren't satisfied to stay in Greece. These were conquerors. And so they wanted to move out into new territory. Here's why. Next map. It shows you the Via Maris Highway. What we would think of as the I-75 of our day. Something that stretches from Michigan all the way down to Florida. Well, in their day, the Via Maris went from Rome, the known world empire, down to Egypt, the other known world empire. And this was an economic corridor. So the people of the Philistine nation coming from Greece wanted some more financial opportunities. They're going to expand their horizons. So they move into this territory. They were there before Israel got there. They moved there in 1200 B.C. So that's the setting of what takes place. This author is very detailed, and he helps us to picture this. Let's go to verse 3. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So we understand that these armies are entrenched on either side. One army is against one mountain, one army against the other mountain, and there's a valley called Elah in between, which is about a half mile wide perhaps, pretty large flat area, a little brook running down through the middle of it. It's not just a little ravine, it's a pretty wide valley. And we're told that there's a champion that comes out. Now, the word champion in Hebrew is ben-anim, and ben-anim literally means middleman. We use that phrase every day in our English language. A champion is a middleman, someone who doesn't fight on the front line, but rather goes ahead of the front lines and does battle on behalf of the king who selected him. So the middleman steps out into the valley, and this middleman happens to be not only a champion, but his name is Goliath, and we're told his height is six cubits in a span. I don't know if you know much about measurements in the Bible, um, what a cubit is, but this actually factors out to be roughly between nine feet six and nine feet ten inches. You look a little skeptical. How could that guy be that big? Okay. So I've got to take my jacket off to do this. So I was trying to think, how could I help you picture this situation? Earlier this week, I was doing a little research and looking at some different artwork that captured what Goliath might have looked like. Okay? So I found this image of this guy, and uh, this is an artist rendition of what a Greek warrior might have looked like, and he entitled it Goliath. Then I figured out what 9 feet 10 inches is, and I put him on the pole. Okay. He looked like he could do some harm. 
nine feet, ten, nine feet, six, who cares? Okay? He could pound you into the soil. All right. So I go to Office Max. I took the image that I had on my little thumb drive, and I said, guys, I need you to enlarge this for me. Goliath's head is actually about 24 inches. Can you do that? They said, well, we can get it up to 20 probably. I said, okay, close enough. They laminate it. I went back to pick it up. Guy slides it over on the counter to me, and he said, dude, is this from the world of Warcraft? (laughs) I said, well, kind of. Um, It's actually the biblical Goliath, and proportionately, I tried to figure out how big he was, and he's like 24 inches, you know, 9 feet, 10, about 750 pounds. Dude, that'll do it. I don't think he has a biblical background, but that's okay. Say, so you got an idea. So is there other references in Scripture to giants? Absolutely there are. Let's go back and look at Scripture, first of all. Joshua eleven twenty two up on the screen. There were no Anakim, that's a biblical word for giants. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, wow, there's a reference, and Ishtad, some remained. Joshua is writing this post-flood. This is after the flood of Noah. There's another reference from Moses, Deuteronomy 2.20. A land of giants, giants dwelt therein in old time. He's referring to the Rephilim, another name for giants. And then the Nephilim. This is referred to back in Genesis 6.4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. we got biblical references to other giants. What about present time, like during this time that Goliath lived? Well, first of all, we find in 1 Chronicles, an Egyptian who was pretty big. 1 Chronicles 11.23, an Egyptian who was seven and a half feet tall. Well, that's getting close to Shaquille O'Neal. Shaq is seven foot two, 375 pounds. So this guy's in that same range. But there's another one that's referred to in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 3.11. For only Og, king of Bashan, was left among the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bedstead was an iron bedstead. Its length was nine cubits and its width four cubits by ordinary cubit. How big is that? Thirteen feet. He had a 13-foot bed. He's a Rephaim. So we're looking at some seriously large individuals. Can we equate that to our day and age? Robert Wadlow, 1940, died in 1940. You see his image on the screen. He was 8 feet 11 inches tall when he died. Okay, That's present time. Now, Robert Wadlow was a, a, a person who suffered from giganticism. But you understand the human body has the capacity to continue to increase in size. This individual obviously reached that, but he was a warrior, a fighting man. What about Goliath himself? Can we actually validate from this day and age, for those who are skeptical, that he really lived? Well, not until 2005 we couldn't, when archaeologists were working in the ancient city of Gath, unearthing it, and they found a pottery shard with his name inscribed in it. As a matter of fact, if you look where this individual's finger is pointing, it says, Goliath of Gath dwelt among us. 2005, archaeologists, non-biblical source, actually found this. So now we find that in Scripture, we have validation of a giant, we have modern archaeology, and we have biblical references of all types of different giants. So David's up against a real individual. Let's move on. Verse 5, he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. So scale armor is what we call dragon skin armor today. It's woven into fabric. You'll see an image of it on the screen. Scale armor is woven to a heavy canvas undergarment, and they prop it over their shoulders. It goes all the way down to the knees. 5,000 shekels is not how many pieces of metal he was wearing. 5,000 shekels is the weight. So if you weigh somewhere between 175 and 200 pounds, Goliath is wearing you. 175 to 200 pounds of steel or bronze or copper, whatever he's wearing, it was invincible. When you swung a sword against it, when you hit it with a spear, couldn't be penetrated. So Goliath is wearing 175 to 200 pounds of armor. 
Move on, verse 6. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. Soccer players, you're very familiar with that. Greaves are what you put over your shins. Bronze greaves protecting the bottom of his legs. People who were so short that couldn't reach him could only reach his kneecaps. Okay, so he's got bronze greaves on. Verse 7. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield, also carrier, also walked before him. So heavy weapons are no problem for him whatsoever. If he comes in somewhere around 700 pounds, he can carry this kind of weight. Many times the strength of a normal man. His spear alone weighs 25 pounds. Imagine being hit by that missile. This is what this guy's packing. And he's got the largest shield available to man. It's called a sinah. A normal warrior couldn't even carry a shield like this. So he's got one individual who just carries his shield to protect him from arrows. The sinah was actually six feet tall. This guy's a pretty serious warrior. This is the most detailed biblical description of any person physically that we have. And God uses this description on this warrior so that we get it, so that we really understand what David is up against. So I love watching pro football, especially when they bring up the images of guys who are the Goliaths of our day, and they put their face on the screen, and then they put their vital statistic next to them, and they say, yeah, I'm so-and-so from the University of Hurt, all right, all right? So I did that with Goliath, all right? So who is he? Goliath of Gath from the University of Intimidation, nine feet, 10 inches tall, his weight 645 pounds approximately. Position, the offensive tormentor. His armor, a bronze helmet, his weapons, a bronze javelin, his personality, he's arrogant, he's brash, and he's vulgar. And his favorite food is shepherds. (laughs) This is who this guy is. And he must have appeared invincible. By any standard of measure, I don't care what you use, he is the Abrams tank of his time. Can't be stopped. Move on, verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Choose a man to come down to me because he's standing in the valley. They're on the hillside. Philistines are on the hillside. I'm in the valley down here. Send a man down to me. I'll take great pleasure in grinding his bones. Goliath seems to speak for the entire Philistine army. What's going on there? This is called representative warfare, in which a king would choose a champion or himself to represent the entire nation so that they wouldn't have to shed the blood of all the soldiers. So representative warfare says, if you have a hero... Choose him, bring me some man flesh. I'm going to take him on. You're looking at 950 BC version of SmackDown. And this is what Goliath is taking on, and he finds no takers, no one dares. Go with me to verse 10. Again, the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Do you think he only did this once? If you, I'm not going to jump on the screen there, but if you look in your Bibles and you jump down to verse 16, you're going to see that he did this 40 days, day and night, morning and evening, day after day after day. He harassed them. When he says, I defy the ranks of Israel, this is the word he literally used. Look at the screen and see the definition for the word, haraf. I'm going to pull off your clothes. I'm going to strip you naked. And all the world will know that I defeated you. You have giants like that in your life? Giant that wants to strip you clean? That's why I said, is it financial? Is it occupational? Relational? Because those giants, they never get up. Nothing is more persistent than the giants in our life. I defy you to come against me day after night after day after night. That's what they're up against. 
That's why I asked you to validate for yourself, what is that question in your mind? What are you up against? What would you like to have victory over? Let's get some background detail on David. Verse 12, now David was the son of the Ephratite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. Now Jesse's already old. He's got eight sons. His three oldest sons are warriors who have followed after Saul. Literally, the way it's written in Hebrew is they walked in the ways of Saul. They became battlemen. So in verse 16, here's where we're told how often this happened. The Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. So as this unfolds, I'm picturing this. Goliath standing in this valley. Come on. Bring me some man flesh. I want to take you on. Why in the valley? Why in the flat area and why not advance on them? Well, it's very easy to understand. The Philistines carry heavy armament. As a matter of fact, we're told from Scripture, they had chariots made of steel. Look with me on the screen. 1 Samuel 13. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. You been to the seashore lately? (laughs) That's a lot of people. And these individuals want to be on the flat level ground because... Their ATVs don't climb hills. Their chariots tip over when they go up hills. So they have to stay on the level ground. Let's move on to verse 17. Then Jesse said to David, his son, Take now for your brothers an epaph of this roasted grain and these ten loaves and run to the camp to your brothers. Bring also these ten cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand and look into the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. See, dad hasn't heard from the boys in 40 days, and he thinks they're fighting. He doesn't know about this guy. He doesn't know that there's a warrior there who's intimidating the entire army. It's been a while since he's received any report. And due to his age, he can't go himself. So he summons David. So David has an assignment from dad. David, come here. I want you to run this pizza and breadsticks up to your brother. Get a report. Come on back. I want to know what's going on. That's the most important thing to me. Bring me a report. Take the provisions, find out how they're doing, and come on back. And there's a sense of urgency here. Hurry, David. Run there. So we see David coming to this fight in a very different way. He's a shepherd. He's probably 20 years old at this time. He has no military experience. He's coming to this fight as a message boy. He's the youngest of eight. His brothers are in the military. He's not. Who could imagine that God was going to orchestrate his steps in such a way that he would encounter a giant? I'm sure that Jesse does not want to put his son in harm's way in any shape or form, so he says to him, Go while the soldiers are in the camp, not while they're on the front lines, but he arrives when they're on the front lines. Because why? Because God orchestrates your steps. God lays out the plans. You may plan your own ways. Look with me on the screen. Proverbs 16, 9, the mind of a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. See, David could have arrived earlier, could have been a couple hours earlier. He arrived at the moment They're going to the front line for battle. Go with me to verse 20. So David arose early in the morning and left the flock with a keeper and took the supplies and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Now remember, he's totally new to this. David stands watching this amazing show. The guys are screaming and yelling. They're marching to the front line, and he's just there in time for it. And this is so exciting that he has to leave the food behind and follow his brothers so that he can actually talk with them up to the front line. Verse 22, then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered in order to greet his brothers. 
As he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke these same words, and David heard them. First time. David's never heard this before. He's certainly never seen this. Wow! (laughs) Have you seen this guy? Are you kidding me? And then he begins to hear the words, the words of intimidation, the words that this giant uses. And while David is overwhelmed by this, he turns around to talk to his brothers, and they're gone. Everybody's run the opposite way. Why? I want you to look at verse 23 and verse 25 together, and you're going to see a phrase that's repeated three times, coming up, coming up, coming up. It's the word Allah. Look with me on the screen, and you'll see the definition for it. This is why they're running. Goliath is no longer in the valley. He's ascending up into their territory. See the definition for that? To ascend actively, to mount. He's coming into their space. Here's the truth. You give that giant enough space in your life, and he is going to cross over into your territory to the degree you'll have no place left to go. Your space will be gone. There is no safety zone. And they see him coming up, coming up, coming up. If you compare verse 8 with verse 25, you'll see that Goliath was calling them down, and now they say he's coming up. But David hears something that catches him off guard completely. The king will enrich the one who takes on the giant and kills him. Now, I think David's not intrigued just because of the money, because he wants to defend God as well. But he hears that King Saul is going to give wealth to the one who takes on the giant. And I think this is the way it probably happened because of human nature. I think there was probably an anti-up. First, the king would say, I'll give you wealth. That's not good enough. Tell you what, I'll throw in my daughter as well. That's not going to do it. I'll tell you what, I'll make the IRS go away. No more tax collection. Now, they're probably all thinking, yeah, well, what good is it if I'm not alive to spend it? Verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, because he can't believe this, saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? The people answered him in accord with this word, saying, Thus it will be done for the man who kills him. Is there some catch, something I'm missing? Why is no one accepting this? We're going to get wealth, and we get to defend the name of our God? How come you're not stepping up? David uses the exact same word that Goliath uses. When Goliath said, I defy the armies of Israel, I strip you, Look at David. Look on the screen. The word haroth, to taunt the armies. David understood totally what's going on. Who is this one who stands outside of a relationship with God whatsoever, this one who's uncircumcised, to strip us naked, leave us out here in the valley, and he insults our God? See, David's motivated partially by the reward, but mostly by the defense of his God. Go with me to verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you have come down in order to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a question? Does that sound like an older brother talking to a younger brother? In some cases, yes. Those few sheep, your pity old job. It's trivial. It's insignificant. It amounts to nothing. What is he doing? He's trying to slam David. He's guilty of running away from the battle, and yet in the midst of his guilt, he begins accusing his brother out of jealousy. Is it not interesting to note that David is on the verge of one of the greatest battles that will define his spiritual life, and someone is hurling false accusations at him? Ever encountered that? You're about to do something on behalf of God, and someone is accusing you? David is of such focus, he ignores the accuser, and he moves back to the bigger picture. Go with me to verse 30. 
Then he turned away from him to another and said the same thing. And the people answered the same thing as before. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. So David's asked three times now for confirmation. Are the people waiting for someone to step up to the plate to be a hero? David has no more let the words fall out of his mouth than they're running off to Saul to say, Saul, we finally found someone. Finally, after 40 days, somebody's going to step up to the plate. I'm thinking the moments between when they arrived at Saul's door and told him that they found a warrior and when David walked around the corner built up such a sense of anticipation in Paul's heart or Saul's heart that he's totally ready for this guy to take on this guy. Forty days of embarrassment. He's the king of Israel. He's been shamed. David walks around the corner, though, and all his hopes go away. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from his youth. And here's where the danger comes in, church, in allowing your eyes to glaze over on this story. I want you to let this settle in for a minute. David is 20 years old. He has no military experience. And he says, let not your heart be discouraged. Don't let your fear run away. Take confidence. I'm going to fight him. You let that settle in? Where does that kind of courage come from? How can a 20-year-old young man say, I'm going to take that on? See, the fact that this warrior is still alive is amazing. I'll tell you why in just a minute. Saul's response is, David, no way. He will squish you. You won't survive this fight. It's not possible. He's a man of war. Here's what's remarkable. That he's still alive. He's been a fighting man since his youth, a gladiator. Now he's a fully developed man, a warrior in the valley, and he's still alive despite the fact he takes on all comers. It means he's never been defeated, church. He's never once been beat, and yet this 20-year-old kid's going to go up against him. So let's think about what these obstacles are in the way of David. He's ready to take on the battle. Here's the obstacles. First of all, he's a shepherd. He tends sheep for a living. He has no military experience. He's not even enlisted in the army. He's young. His brother, he has to get past him. And now he has to get official permission from the king. Those obstacles trying to keep him from what he knows he's supposed to do. Verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending the, the, his father's sheep when a lion or bear came out and a When a lion or bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and I attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. When he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. If you don't mind writing in your Bible, I would write right next to those verses that you just saw, remember Remember the ways that God has delivered you in the past because the same God will deliver you in the future. That's what David's doing here. He's remembering how God has given him victory in the past. And what has it done for him? It's given him the confidence to stand. He's taking his position. I've seen danger before. I understand what I'm getting into. And just as God has delivered me in the past, he's going to deliver me this time. Verse 37. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. But if you don't know that, that's code for I'll pray for you, okay? (laughs) I'm not going to battle myself. But that's what he's saying. David is clearly a man of courage. You might ask, where does he get this courage from? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Here's where he gets his courage from. 
His courage comes from his theology. It's cultivated in his understanding of the nature and character of God. He understands the nature of character of God, and so therefore he's cultivated this heart of courage. He's a man after God's own heart, according to what Scripture says. You cannot be a man after God's own heart if you're not one who knows God's heart. Let's look at the old David writing about the youthful David. Go with me up on the screen to Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. See, David not only knows God historically and theologically, he knows him experientially as well. He's got the full picture. He's the guy who's culturally relevant, yet spiritually distinct, and he's molded the two together to understand, I can, inf- I can fight against this thing that stands against us in culture, and yet I can claim a victory for God at the same time. He knows the heart of God. What you are witnessing here, church, is a man who has personal resolve no matter what, no matter what society says, he stands defiant to it because God gets the victory. He's defending the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that's what he recognizes. Go with me on to verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk. For he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. Do you know that for the tens of thousands of warriors who are gathered on either side of the mountains, who are looking down into the valley, when they see the king's armor walk down into the valley, what do they think? Saul, he's walking out before Goliath. So that really bodes well for Saul, doesn't it? They see the king's armor walking out. And if he dies, well, he was a martyr for the kingdom. But if he wins, it's the king's armor. See, the ancients believed that to wear the king's armor meant that you were imbued with their nature. But David can't do this. Rule number one, why? Don't take advice from someone who's not willing to go to the battle themselves. He's not willing to go to the battle. David's not going to take his advice. I can't do this. And David does what no one expects. But here's what he's doing. He's doing what he knows to do. The abilities that God has given you when you face that giant are the abilities that you need. Your skill sets, you are uniquely equipped to face the giants that are in your life. No one else is. God brings these giants into our lives because he knows that we are uniquely equipped to face them. David does not become instantly a great swordsman. He does not become a great javelin thrower. He's going to do what he knows to do. God has equipped him. He's had previous battles with lions and bears that have led up to this moment. You are uniquely qualified to face the battle that God has allowed to come into your life. Verse 40, he took his stick in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with a shield bearer in front of him. I don't know if you knew that stones were part of typical modern warfare at this time. Military captains outfitted their soldiers with stones, usually a three-inch cylindrical stone that they made out of flint. Look with me on the screen, 2 Chronicles 26. Under their direction was an elite army of 307,500 who could wage war with great power to help the king against the enemy. Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields, spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. So David's doing what other military individuals do. And he has a natural supply of stones, the creek. So he's going down to the creek where these spherical stones are at. But remember, he has no defensive armor. He's packing a sling. That's what he's got because that's what he knows. But what Goliath sees is a stick. 
Goliath doesn't see the sling. He sees the stick that's in David's hand. And he jumps to the conclusion that this is David's weapon. You want to insult a man of war? Send a boy out to him with a stick. That will poke the hornet's nest. And that's what happens. Go with me to verse 42. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy with handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. What? Is this the best you have? He's invited the army of Israel to send their greatest champion out. Can you imagine the shock to his system when David walks around the corner? That's why he says the word disdained him. The word is actually bazaar. It means he scorned him. He had no use for him whatsoever. Why? He's a youth. He's ruddy and handsome. Actually, if you go back to verse six, chapter 16, you'll see that Scripture says that David was pretty. He had pretty eyes. The word that's used is yafé. He's never been in battle. He has no scars on his face. He's handsome to look at. And Goliath is covered with battle scars. And he's fuming. And make no mistake, he intends to kill David and feed him to the animals. Go with me to verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel." And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. He uses a specific title unique to God, the Lord of hosts. It means the commanders of the army of heaven. You don't even know who you're fighting against. And David doesn't make it personal for himself. Goliath at this point has said singular speaking to David as an individual, I'm going to fillet you. David's response is, I'm going to take out your whole army. Your whole nation will be wiped out. It's not just you, Goliath. So he's not taking this threat just personal because he understands this. When he says, all the assembly will know. Who's the assembly, church? God's people. All of God's people are watching this one go against the giant. And they're going to take courage from his courage. God's people, this assembly may know that there is a God in Israel. And do you notice that he doesn't make it singular when he says he's going to give you into our hand, into our hands. Ultimately, the fight that you take on, if it's God's fight, is not just for you. It's about the kingdom. It's a battle on behalf of the kingdom of God. You are part of a much much bigger story than what you understand. And David makes it very clear. This is not just personal for me. This is about the kingdom of God. You want to intimidate the giant in your life? Make it very clear who you're fighting for and what you're fighting about. You're fighting for the glory of God. So David sums it up by saying, for the battle is the Lord's. Goliath, I contain armament you have no idea about. I carry firepower from another realm, something you don't even understand. Paul wrote about this to you. He wrote to the church to help us understand the armament that we carry. Look with me on the screen, 2 Corinthians 10.3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Amen? Absolutely, church. Now, David's response gets Goliath moving. If he wasn't irritated before, he's irritated now. But David doesn't wait for Goliath. He loads his gun as he begins running towards the battle. Look with me at verse 48. Then it happened 
when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And at that moment, I'm sure the whole world seemed to stop. Everything motionless. Every eye focused on what David's doing. In my mind, I see David completely unintimidated, running towards the giant, swinging his sling. He's done it before. He's released stones at snakes, at coyotes. What's your greatest battle when you're facing the giant? Intimidation. Why is David not intimidated? Because of what he just said to Saul. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. He understands it's God's battle. Everything is in his hands. Now, we know that Goliath is armor-plated, right? Except for the opening. The opening near his face and in his forehead so that he can see out. David understands it apparently well. One single stone. Look with me at verse 49. And David put his hand into the bag and took, it, took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. One stone slicing through the air. And the giant goes down like a redwood tree. You see the dust filtering up? Boom. He hits the ground. Imagine the shock for those who are watching. He pulls Goliath's sword out of his sheath. David doesn't even have his own sword. He uses Goliath's sword and hacks off his head just to make sure that it's completely done. And the Philistines are paralyzed at this moment. Their greatest warrior has just gone down. The shield barrier has never seen anything like this. He's been a fighting man since his youth. He's never been defeated. But the paralysis lifts as they begin to realize we're next. And so they take off and they begin to run. Go with me to verse 50. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a single, with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. The ultimate humiliation, his own sword. Verse 52, the men of Israel and Judah rose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron, and the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sharim, even to Gath and Ekron. The sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Here's where it ends, verse 54. Then David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. I would argue with you that God will always have his Davids, his Davids among us. And each of us who are Davids, who take on these battles, will always have Goliaths. What that Goliath looks like for you, I don't know. Sometimes it's individuals in your life. Sometimes it's circumstantial. Sometimes, according to the promise of Scripture, it's demonic. We argue not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. And we have multiple forms of battles that we take on in every single case, church. If you remember nothing else when you leave this morning, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. That's what you have to ingrain within your mind. Now, remember all the way back in verse 18 when Jesse sent David out? And he said, David, I want you to bring news back to me. Remind me. Tell me. How are they doing? Give me some kind of a pledge. I don't think his dad had any idea that he was going to walk in the door that night dragging the sword of a giant behind him. He want to pledge, Dad? He puts it up above the fireplace mantle. There's your pledge. Let me tell you about my day. This is what I encountered. Whose weapon is David carrying when it says he put his weapons in his tent? He's taken Goliath's weapons as a trophy, as a reminder of God being faithful in his life. 
You see, David would never know God's capacity to show him his power unless he had gone to the battle in the first place. Second Chronicles 16.9, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro across the whole earth, seeking to show himself powerful on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. That's your God. That's what David understood. So here's what I'm going to let you leave with this morning. Romans 8.31, it's your reminder and promise. This is your promise from Scripture about what you have to look forward to when you take on battles. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." You've got the promise of God that he's with you in all circumstances. So here's two things for you to remember when you go. Be sure, number one, that the battle that you take on is really God's battle and not your own personal agenda. Make sure it's the battle God has called you to. And number two, God expects you to bring to the battle what you have, your abilities that he has given to you already. Some of you are going to face battles this week, some in the next month, maybe in the next nine months. I don't know what they are. But when you hear that voice on the other side of the valley saying, come on, I'll take you on, you remember the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. It belongs to God. Heavenly Father, we trust you with all the information that's been stowed away in our mind right now that your Holy Spirit will cause it to be stored in such a way that we will be able to recall it. Whatever is ahead of us this afternoon or tomorrow, maybe a month from now, we don't know, Father. Remind us through the power of your Holy Spirit working in our life that you want us to give it over to you so that you can work through us. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Have a great week.